I heard somebody say when they talk about God in terms that sort of lower him to just being, oh yeah, God, he's good, like that. They, I heard somebody say, it's like standing beside the Grand Canyon and saying something like, wow, that's an impressive ditch. You know, it's like, no, it's, it's a little more than that. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. And uh, we stand in awe of the glorious God. And I want to uh, uh, bring our attention to chapter 17 of the book of John today. I, I, you know, I feel like I say this every time I preach, but this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, it really is one of the, the high points. The book of John is glorious and chapter 17 is glorious. The, this has been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Let's, uh, we're, in fact, let's start in verse 32 of chapter 16 because I think it gives it a context. And we're going to read through the whole thing. We're only going to cover part of this uh, today, but over the coming weeks we'll talk about it but, uh, uh, more. But starting in uh, chapter 16... Verses 32 and 33. Behold, an hour, this is Jesus speaking, of course. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's encouraging to me. And really relevant for us in our day. Chapter 17. These things Jesus spoke. And lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all mankind. That to all whom you have given him. He may give eternal life. And this is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I asked on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All things that are mine are yours and yours are mine And I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world... 
I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Okay, there's a lot there, and a lot of these things... You and me, me and them, us together, them in us, the love you have for me, the love you have for them, my glory, your glory, all of these things in this high priestly prayer. Jesus opens his heart to the Father in this. It says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he, he allows us a little glimpse of his relationship with God, he, he, with the Father. He allows us in to this prayer. Now, I'm sure he was not unaware of the fact that they were watching to hear how he relates to the Father, but we don't have many prayers of Jesus, uh, or any, that are this long where he's speaking to the Father. And, of course, the moment that he's in is significant. This is the night that he's betrayed. So, of course, he's opening up, and here's this last glimpse that his disciples get of Jesus interacting with the Father. And it's a good one. He opens his heart to the Father and allows us to get a glimpse of their relationship, their priorities, their authority, um, and, and the glory of God. Jesus prays for himself first, then he intercedes for his followers. We can include ourselves in that prayer. And then he prays for those who will follow through the testimony of his followers. We're in that. We're in, we're a generation, you know, down line from where this all started. He prays for, for, for us. 2,000 years down the line. He's, he's praying that it'll go from the disciples to them, to them, to them, to them. And here we are. Praise God. And as many generations as there will be after us, that, uh, spread of the, saving message of Christ will continue to go and they're included in this prayer. He didn't leave anybody out. This is a prayer. This is Jesus praying. The prayer of the Son of God, the perfect sinless Son of God. It's God honoring. It's God revealing and it it reveals his heavenly priorities and intention. It's, it's laid out. It's faith-filled. You hear Jesus saying things in this moment of he knows what's coming he's not unaware he's known for a long time you know way back he was saying we're going to jerusalem i'm going to suffer i'm going to go through all this now he's been there for somewhere about a week 
And he knows what's coming exactly. By this point, Judas has already gone out. Jesus says in uh, John 13, he tells Judas, go, go, you know, do your bidding. Go do what you came to do. And the others are kind of clued out. They don't know. They know something's up. It doesn't, you know, there's tension in the air. But he sends Judas out. Jesus knows what's coming here. And yet here he is, faith-filled. God, I've done it. I've completed the assignment you sent me to do. He's, you don't see anxiety in here in this uh, prayer at all. It's faith-filled. There's no lack of trust, no lack of dependence on the Father. It's directed to the Father. There's urgency, but not anxiety. That's a, a thing I would love to grow in. Because when circumstances are, are challenging for me, and many of us are that way. So... This word appears again and again through this passage, eight times actually, and John uses this word probably more than any of the other um, three gospel writers. Glory or glorified or glorify or glorification. These words, John uses this more than anyone. The word glory is kind of like the word love. We know what it means in common usage, but that's almost part of the problem. Like the word love, it gets used so commonly that we say, oh, I had a Big Mac. I love those. Like, I love Big Macs, you know. Oh, I love God. What, like a Big Mac? You know, and in the same way, we say, oh, our, our hockey team won. In Vancouver, not often, but they they won, and oh, the glory of winning the cup! You know, it's like eh, you know, there's glory in it, but it's it's pretty momentary and it's gone. But when we're talking about God, both of those words take on a whole new meaning. He defines what love is. He is love on a whole other level outside of our common usage. And glory is the same. When we're talking about glory like that thing, it's not common. There's not one of those everywhere. The Grand Canyon, I mean. And there's not God everywhere. He's over and above. As far as we can stretch in our thinking, he's beyond it. I expect when we come face to face with God, when we get to see him... I am confident nobody will be disappointed. Oh, I expected more. No, there will be none of that. He's glorious in a, not in a superficial way, in a way that is, that stretches beyond earthly reality, like the Grand Canyon, to heavenly reality. God is glorious. Whatever we can see of him, whatever we can, whatever works of art there are to depict some aspect of God, he's going to be greater. Amen? Amen? Glory, glorified. What what does glory mean to you? Somebody give me a definition. No trick question, no no dumb answers. Uh, What what does glory mean? What does it mean? Somebody say, look, even how is it used? What does glory mean? Elevated Elevated status, good. Majestic, majesty, yeah. What was it? Savior. Savior. What does glory mean? Like majesty, splendor. It also 
It's an unusual word because it's both a verb and a noun. So we speak about the glory of the Grand Canyon, but also glory means praise or boast. Somebody says, oh, they glory in their victory. It means they boast in it. Or uh, we glory in the Lord means we exalt in him, we celebrate, we triumph, we praise him, we worship him. We distinguish him as great. It both refers to his greatness and then it refers to the act of we glory in Christ, in what he's done for us. So it's a unique word and it's used, in fact, in the Bible over 400 times. In fact, in the New American Standard, it's about 400 times the word glory appears, but it's numerous words that are translated glory. There are a couple of them that make up probably about three quarters of that uh, 400 times. But this, this word is a common uh, word in the Bible, and it's a significant theme from beginning to end. Glory is a, a great Bible theme. Apparently, God is glorious. And we get glimpses of his glory by the natural, uh, the physical reality. Uh, Rose and I just came back from our um, anniversary trip and one of the things that people do in Maui is go to the top of this uh, mountain, Mount Haleakala, and it's 10,000 feet up. And people go up there to see the sun rise or the sun set. And Rose said to me, I want to do that. This is before we went. But it's freezing up there. It says in all the things, take warm clothes. And I'm like, oh, gosh. You know, one of the things I like about going to places like that is you don't need a big wardrobe. You know it's always warm. That's all we need. And so, okay, we'll take a, some long pants, which, you know, we, you, know you get there and you can, you can live for a long time with, you know, in shorts and, you know, uh, you don't need a jacket. They actually sell down jackets in Costco there. I'm like, for who? Maybe the people on top of that mountain. Because there is an observatory on the top of Mount Haleakala. And because it's out in the middle of the Pacific, there's no light pollution, or very little, because there aren't on Maui. You know, there's the, the cities are pretty small. It's on top of this thing. There's no light pollution. They say it's the fourth best uh, view of the cosmos in the world. I don't know where the other three are, but I'm assuming there are other elevated places that are, you know, I guess what, partly what would make that like that is it's out in the middle of the ocean, there's nothing else around. I know you stand on the California coast and look west at night, and I find it amazing because when you're looking west and there's no cities out there, you're looking out at, the, at night at the stars and, you know, in, in Vancouver, greater Vancouver, we see three stars every night. That's about it. You stand and you look out over the ocean, and I mean, it's just like a mass, like they're all together. Well, we went to the top of this mountain, and instead of the sunrise, because you have to get up at about 3 a.m., and we were, didn't want to do that, so we went to the sunset. We got up there, and it, I, I kind of thought as we're going up, eh, gosh, it's going to be a lousy night to see it because there's clouds. 
but you're going up there, and we drove through the clouds, and they're all below us. I, I don't know how high 10,000 feet is, you know, compared to, like, in the Rockies and that. But we're, we're up there, and the clouds are all down below, so we're seeing, it's like being in a plane. You know, the clouds are all below, and we're seeing the sun, uh, you know, setting in the west, and we're looking out over this thing, and, I, you know, I don't know that it was... As, as great as what it might be at times, and it was freezing up there. Um, we found a warm kind of little spot out of the wind, but there were a few people that got there in shorts and tank tops that obviously didn't read what Rose read, and uh, it's like, man, it stinks to be you. <laughs> in our little spot, it was, it was like being, you know, in Alberta in the winter. The wind was icy cold. And so we're out there seeing this, and it's just otherworldly amazing because the clouds are down here. We're up above sort of the... You know the um, the mundane, the the common, the normal, and we're seeing things from a perspective. And it happened to be a full moon, and which you know it was so bright that I think it kind of obscured even some of the stars because it was so bright in the sky. But it's this glorious thing where. In the Psalms, the psalmist says the stars are telling of the glory of the Lord, like creation is is bearing witness to the glory of God. He's great. He's grand. He's, he's more. He's just big. I heard about an artist that uh, Michelangelo was um, a sort of a mentor to, and he apparently came and he saw this painting that this guy was doing, and he, he wrote on it, which I'm sure would be a breach of artist etiquette, but he wrote on it this word that translated just means bigger, more. Like you're not thinking big enough. He just wrote on the guy's painting. He said, lift your eyes higher, think bigger. It was a word that basically is the word from which we get the word mega. It's like you're, you're not thinking big enough. And when we get to the top of a mountain and we see this, the stars are telling of the glory of God. But again, only this much. They're just scratching the surface. They can't actually give us the fullness of the glory of God that we see in the book of Revelation. John was still like, well, it was like surrounded by a rainbow and a sea of glass and there was fire and there's this and his skin was like polished bronze and his eyes like a flame of fire. And it's like he's just reaching for something to kind of give us a little glimpse. God is glorious. Expect more. Expect bigger. Expect greater. We, we, he's that glorious. The, the natural order, the creation is telling of his glory, but it only testifies this far. He's more. We don't, we don't see the whole picture yet. Um, and we would say this, our lives are for the glory of God. Amen? Our lives are to glorify him. The um, uh, Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I know one Baptist uh, pastor in the States that I listened to a fair bit, John Piper, he says, no, I think they missed it a bit. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. He's that good. He's that enjoyable. It's, we will glorify him and honor him by enjoying him. He's that 
beautiful. He is glorious. He is glorious. God is glorious even if we don't fully see it. Even if we only get glimpses now and then. And I'll, I'm, I'm looking to see. But I know I'll only see so much. But in this present world and my present circumstances, you know, I, I only see so much. But I, I'm believing because of what this points to. Because of what creation points to. I'm believing that he's greater. Amen? We're only getting a glimpse. There was my old pastor, his oldest child, his daughter. I mean, she was, I don't know, maybe four or five. They had four kids in five years. They were all bunched together. And she was maybe four or five. And they're trying to get their kids to eat something. And they're, they're making this meal that the parents liked. And, and the kids didn't. Um, anybody experienced? <laughs> I know we did. It used to almost be like, well, here's the meal for a rose and myself, and here's what the kids will eat. You know, we're making stir fry for the kids who are making chicken strips because, you know, just those kind of things. They're f- trying to feed their daughter something, and they're trying to hype it up. Oh, this is really good. This is great. You're going to like it. And their little daughter, uh, Robin, <laughs> With a smile on her face, very positively, she she says as they're eating it, and they you know they didn't want the other kids to hear this because you know they'll follow suit. It's like mommy, daddy, and they're like yes. If this food is so good, why does it taste so yucky? <laughs> you know, it's like you know, and it's almost like you know we're telling people God is great, but you know He doesn't seem like it in our present circumstances. No, you just you know different than that. You know, like a the what, what's that expression? The the proof is in the pudding or something like that. It's like you're saying it's good, but it tastes bad. Well, with God. It's like in this world, it might appear like it goes kind of against the grain, but that's because our grain is wired the wrong direction. And God is good, and he is merciful, and he is loving, and he is glorious. And if we get a glimpse of him, I know that nothing will compare. Um, He isn't yucky. We just need our taste buds reworked. Because we have a taste for worldly things. And we need a change. He is glorious. Okay, this passage, this part. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now... Glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus mercifully alerts his disciples to some of what's about to happen. And I find this really relevant for our day. He alerts them and us to the challenges we can expect. In this life, he says, in the world you have tribulation. Expect 
trouble. Expect trial. Expect to be offended. That's almost countercultural now. That we, you know, can't be offended. Oh, I'm offended. I'm offended. Our, our generation, everybody's so fragile. We can't expect some tribulation. Amen? Anybody who's lived more than a day has experienced some challenge. Amen? It just is the way that it is. It's there. It, and Jesus is mercifully saying, you can expect some of that in the world. However, take courage. I've overcome the world. He's not saying you're not going to feel some pain. You're not going to have any storms. No way. That's not reality. The life, life in Christ is not just a party. Anybody find that? Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a party. I mean, there's stuff going on. He says, but take courage. I've overcome the world. Then he says this in his prayer. Father, the hour has come. Do you know from all this hour has been approaching from the time Jesus was born. I don't know when exactly he was fully self-aware, but we get that little glimpse in Luke when he was 12 years old. And he, his family leaves. They think he's with relatives, but no, he's still back in Jerusalem. And they come and he says, you know, I had to be about my father's business or I had to be in my father's house. His, he was somehow already very self-aware, but at some point... In his life, he started talking about his hour. His hour would come. His mother, he's at a, a wedding with his disciples at, in the book, in the second chapter of John, with his disciples and his mother, and she overhears the head waiter saying, they're out of wine. Well, that was a real breach of etiquette. They're out of wine at the wedding. And I don't know why she told Jesus I don't know what she had seen that she thought he might do something about it. And he gives this answer, which in English it sounds a little odd to us, awkward. It's like, he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? Which sounds a little bit like, sounds disrespectful, but I understand it really was not uh, in uh, the language. And we won't go into all of it, but he says this, following, he says, my hour hasn't yet come. And it's like, hmm, what a funny answer. And I wonder if his mom thought, whatever. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. Something in his answer, though, twigged. And she said, that sounds to me like he's being evasive and like, look elsewhere for a supply. But she picks up on something and says to the head waiter, whatever he says, do it. I would not have picked that up from that statement. But he says, my hour hasn't come. She says, whatever he says to do, do it. And of course, we know what happens. These big water pots that hold gallons and gallons and gallons of water. Uh, He says, pour a little out and the water has turned into wine. This miracle. Then it continues on again in John 7.30 after he taught in the temple uh, at one of the feasts. And his opponents were looking to seize him, it says. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour. Okay, the hour for what? Look for a moment in John chapter 12. I'm going to read from uh, verse 23 through 32. Here's Jesus right at the end of his 
ministry in Jerusalem just um, like the, the night before he's uh, arrested. Philip comes, says, there are some uh, Greeks who want to meet you. Again, I don't understand really what the connection was here, but Jesus, when he hears this, says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. These people want to meet you. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. But he who hates his life in the world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. That's the whole point of Jesus being sent. He's come. Father, glorify your name. Here's that language again. There came, therefore, a voice out of heaven. Okay, this separates, as the expression goes, the men from the boys, the the novices from the pros. Here comes... Uh, He prays, and you hear out of heaven a voice saying, he he says, Father, glorify your name. There came, therefore, a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Okay. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Whatever it was. It wasn't the norm when somebody prays. This is over and above. Jesus says, glorify the Son, glorify the name of the Son, and out of heaven, the Father actually speaks audibly, and people hear it saying, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. Jesus answered (laughs) and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world shall be be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. That's what he means by being glorified. When he talks about his hour, he's talking about this very thing. This hour. When he, he prays the same thing here in verse 1. He says, the hour has come. Whenever he uses that phrase, he's talking about suffering and death. He's talk and the resurrection. He's talking about this great event of the cross, the suffering, the cross, the death, and the resurrection. The cross that separated him momentarily from the Father became his great victory and his glory. The very thing that seemed like, oh, the, the biggest defeat. The the crushing defeat is actually his glory. William Barclay, an old commentator, says this. The cross was a magnet that drew people to Jesus. Remember he says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. William Barclay says, the cross was a magnet that drew people to Jesus in a way that his glorious life never did. I mean, he lived and healed. He delivered people. He did things they said. We've, no man has ever spoken like this. No man has ever done the works that this guy did. Everywhere he went, it says he healed all who were oppressed by the devil. Over and over and over, everything he did was good. But the cross, he's more glorified in it 
than he was even in his life. If I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. He drew some to himself, but now all. Jesus is glorified by the, by the hour in human history where the contents of the gospel took place. The things that we now call the gospel, the cross of Christ, where sin was atoned for, the death of Jesus and the resurrection, that's the hour that he was talking about right here. In this hour, a sinless man died for the sins of all others, of all other men and women who were sinners. The sinless man died for all the ones who were sinners so that they could be forgiven and released from their sins forever. Thank God. That's what took place in this moment. That's not the end, though. It didn't just end with that. The father then vindicates and glorifies his son by resurrecting him. He obliterated the shame of the cross by saying, that's what the world thinks of my son. Here's what I think of my son. And he raises him to new life, defeating death, going to the extreme of sending his son to the cross so that we know there's no limit to how far the love of God will go to get us. No limit. It's not like if Jesus had stopped short, you know, when he's in the garden and he already knows what's happened. That comes even after this prayer that he's praying right here, this high priestly prayer. Jesus is in the garden. He says, you know, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, not as I would maybe choose in my humanity and my humanness, the pain I'm going to suffer, not as I will, but your will be done. He never wavered. He's presenting this to the Father. He knows what he's going to go through. And he does this thing. And through that challenge, had he stopped short, it would have meant the love of God goes that far and that's about it. Nope. All the way he gives his life, a sinless life for sinners so that we could be forgiven and released. Then he gets resurrected and it shows the, the limits of God's love and it opens the way. It, creatures restored and reconciled. It opens the way for life to us, eternal resurrection life to us. Takes our sin, now life's been defeated. He doesn't just step past into resurrection life, but he leads the way so that now all who believe in him can have that same resurrection life. Praise the Lord. Really. My life is staked on that. And I'm confident. I'm confident in that. I'm not confident in many things. There's a lot going on, but that I'm confident in. I'm intending to finish my course believing that Christ has died for my sins, they've been forgiven, and that resurrection life has been procured for me and secured for me. I'm staking my life on that. I'm staking my and I'm and not just for me again. We want that life for many. Amen? The life that's gonna go beyond the grave here, that's gonna go beyond it. Okay? Jesus is glorified. In these events that are the contents of the gospel. 
suffering, cross, resurrection. He's glorified in it. He knew it was coming. He saw it was coming. He prayed about it coming in preparation for it. Father, glorify me now in this and be glorified through me in it. And restore me to the glory that I had with you before the world was. Restore me to it. He's come. He's been sent with this assignment. Okay. I'm going to cap it here because as we're going to continue on, but I don't want to just rush this next bit about eternal life and what Jesus says next. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hour. This one brief little piece of all of history upon which you were working toward from the beginning and now which we look back on as the beginning of a sea change, God, where where the way was opened up for mortals, for sinful mortals to come and be reconciled to you, to experience our own death and resurrection in Christ. Father, I pray in this room today for any who haven't yet said to Jesus, I see what you did for me and I'm putting my trust in you. As a sinner, I'm acknowledging my sin so that I can be forgiven, so that I can be included in that great forgiving act of the cross and then included in the life, the resurrection life that followed it. If that's you today, if you've never yet said, Jesus, I need forgiveness, and I want to be reconciled to you, and I want life, resurrection life. Now's the moment. I want you to just say, just uh, signal, uh, everyone's head bowed, eyes closed, except mine. If you, that's you, and you want to say, I want that today, just put your hand up quickly. It just takes a second. You just raise your hand. Yeah, thank you. That's for you. Father, let's all pray this together. Just say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus. For glorifying him through suffering and death and the resurrection in order to reconcile me. Today I accept that price, that sacrifice. In Christ, I receive forgiveness for my sins. In Christ, I receive the new life that he has promised in Jesus' name. If that's you today and you prayed that for the first time, 
That's you crossing over the threshold into the kingdom. And it doesn't end there. We get in the door and then we live for him, for him to be glorified in us. And he transforms us and he makes us more and more and more like himself. Father, I pray for that working right now in each one. If there are any others who um, need that, God, who maybe didn't uh, raise their hand, that even now you'd continue to work to bring us to that place that we would know you. We'd receive you and know you, God. And we'll touch more on that next week. Father, bless your people. Thank you for each one that's here. We do pray for those, particularly for Mel and Bernie with uh, Bernie's health challenges right now. We pray for them as they travel. We thank you, God, for uh, working a good work in us, even this week in the Wednesday night service. God, strengthen the church, grow the church. Use this church to reach others in our generation in Jesus' name. Amen.